Turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5. This will be the first verse we read, but not quite yet. We're going to go to our PowerPoint. We've been teaching with PowerPoints on Sunday mornings, which is, I've done that a few times over the last three or four years, but we've really hit it a lot lately. I'm trying to systematically teach on the family. Uh, Most of us here are Americans. We have a lot of internationals in our church. I think we all recognize our culture is falling apart. Family is the fabric of society, and if culture falls apart, it's because families fall apart. If society falls apart, if the fabric falls apart, it's because the threads are falling apart, and families are those threads. And it's just evident, even through our media, we have a new show. It's not a new show. It's an older show now called Modern Family, which basically is as if to say God's way is out of date. And I've never watched it. I'm familiar with it. It's just kind of anything and everything goes, and they call that family. And so one of the things the Lord began to deal with me about three or four or five weeks ago is to come back, circle around, and teach again on family. And I think we all need it. We're all part of one. We all came from one. And uh, even if we're not going to have a family of our own, maybe the Lord's called us uh, to singlehood, or maybe we're a widow or a widower now, and we're not going to ever remarry. We may still have children or grandchildren. We need to be able to at least know the doctrines of Christ to be able to help the body of Christ. There's no doctrine you're exempt from knowing. We ought to know the Bible. Even the genealogies will bring us life. He said, I sent my word and healed them. The genealogies are the word of God. That may be a stretch for your mind, but you could read the genealogies and get more than just sleepy. You get healed because it's the word of God. Amen. So let's pull up our PowerPoint. And about at some point through there, I'm going to have them pull it down and throw up a picture when it fits. I've got a a picture from one of my trips to Zimbabwe that'll be fitting this morning. We've been teaching on family, and so we've been calling this God's Blueprint for Biblical Families. This is our third message. I thought we'd get into romance and sexual intimacy, but we really can't do that till we fully cover husbands treating their wives like Christ does the church. And in order to get there, we got to review real quick and run through some things. I'm going to come back and hit us again a little bit from a different angle to talk more about submission in marriage. I told my wife this morning, even in preparing this PowerPoint, which will be a little bit of a continuation on last week's topic of ontological Trinitarianism versus economic Trinitarianism and what is called economic subordinationism, even in prepping this, I could feel the tension of the spirit realm not liking what I'm teaching because it violates feminism and wokeism. Amen. And so I'm going to ruffle some of your feathers because a majority of you are white. And then that means half of that is women. And then probably a half of that is middle-age white women. And, and I've taught for years around here. If you were born, if you're a woman born after 1965 in this nation, you're about one quarter lesbian and don't even realize it. That's how feminist and and. and rebellious and and insubordinate our culture has washed over you. Even my wife said, she said, honey, you can't help it. It washes over you in this nation to be independent, to shake your fist and say, who are you to tell me what to do? Even with me reading scriptures last week that very clearly said from Paul, where Paul said, the woman was made for man, not man for the woman. You guys tensed up on me. All I did was read a scripture. The same Paul inspired by the same Holy Ghost that taught us word of faith folks to speak in tongues and speak to mountains, he also said women were made for men, not men for women. And we should say the man for wife because not all women are made for every man. The Bible says submit to your own husband. So this, this is really rough on you. I teach this in Africa. Nobody has a problem with it. 
teach this in Mexico, nobody has a problem with it, or South America, because they have understanding of a family. Here we are, we, we have this new anathema called the patriarchy. Now, if you've paid any attention to media or if you've gone to college in the last 20 years, you've heard about the patriarchy, and that is basically what you've heard is it's of the devil, though woke professors don't believe in the devil, though they are the devil. They, <laughs> the patriarchy is just basically a male-run society. All right? They don't like the patriarchy. I'm not, I don't have a problem with women having businesses or companies or corporations, but there's a problem when a woman wants to be a man when those aren't her graces. And there's a problem when a man wants to be a woman when those aren't his graces. If we're going to operate according to divine design, we have to figure out who God made us to be and then be that. And if you've had little children of both sexes, because there's only two, you can see a difference in the children by the time they're about nine or ten months old. The little boys will chuck baby dolls. Little girls are already carrying them on their hip at 11 months. It's just in them. It's divine design. So anything the devil can do to pervert design destroys the system faster. And so we, I've taught this on and off over the years. Those of you that have been here with me the longest know I probably exalt women way more than I do men. Is that right, ladies? And I brag on women way more than I do men because women are truly the Swiss army knife when the guy sometimes is barely a stick. And if he does have a stick, he's poking his own eye out with it. Need mama's help. So I'm not against women being highly educated. We have more female PhDs in this church than male PhDs. And I'm proud of all you ladies. You really, I mean, it, it's, a, it's impressive and it's praiseworthy. And, and we're not against women having businesses. And we're not against women doing things that God's called them to do. But it's gotta, you got to make sure it's what God has called you to do. We don't live for success. We live for Jesus Christ. If, if, if the world can't tell us apart from them, we're not really believers. And so it's honestly, it's kind of ironic that one of the things that's going to make you different than the world is to actually be who God made you to be. And if you don't like the patriarchy, you don't want to meet my father. Because he is the father. He created the patriarchy. Amen. So let's get to reading here. Just because you survived your upbringing doesn't mean it was biblical or that your kids need to relive it. We've said this every week because we're dealing with changing the blueprint of the family. Our nation is dissolving. Our culture is dissolving, and it's not getting better. It's getting worse and more and more wicked. Uh, the family is falling apart. Anything goes now. And now we've been indoctrinated for 60 years with Dr. Carl Rogers' unconditional positive regard, and we've been taught, who are you to judge? I've heard so many even good faith preachers say, I'm not one to judge. Well, you ought to be. Paul, through the Holy Ghost, said, He that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judging no man. You ought to be one to judge. What we can't do is send someone to hell, but we can certainly tell someone what you're doing is unbiblical, unchristlike, and it will kill you. And that is called love. We must raise the family standard, and this may indict how you are currently doing things. And, and I've said stuff over the last few weeks that you probably said, that's not how I did it. Well, ignorance is only bliss the first time you're dumb. And after that, you got to come up. Some of you in here met on social media. You're married now. Do you want your kids to follow in your footsteps? Is that the standard? Is that the biblical standard? M hit each other up on Christian mingle? Some of you met each other in chemistry class because you found you had some. 
You want your kids really to find their mate in class? No. Some of you met at the bar. Thank God you got born again and got delivered from alcohol. Does that mean you want your kids? Oh, this thing's got to get higher every generation. So I'm not condemning the way you did things. I'm just going to tell you my kids aren't going to do it. And neither should your kids. If we have a higher standard, why would you go with the lesser one? <laughs> yeah. If you're sitting at an airport about to fly over the Atlantic and you're looking at two airplanes and one of them has a 100% success rate and the other has a 65% success rate, which airplane are you going to choose? But you'll fight for a 65% successful marriage. I'm raising the standard. It's evident Americans don't know how to do this anymore because the church's divorce rate matches the world. Uh, we were, I was putting my girls to bed last night. We were praying. Amanda rocks Bud Bud and then puts him to bed. And I pray with the girls and we talk and put them to bed. And they, it turned out to be a thousand questions. And they, I don't even think they wanted answers because before I could answer one, the other was interrupting with another question. And it's all over the map. And at some point... Uh, Lydia said, um, she said, why do people get divorced so easy? Well, I guess we're talking about divorce tonight. And I said, well, I, she said, and then before I could answer, why do they quit? Why do they just give up like that? And I said, well, I don't, I don't think. She said, they don't take their time. They don't trust God to marry the right person. I'm like, all right, it's pretty good for a nine-year-old. Because we pray with them every night. They marry the right person at the right time. And that spouse is going to be our disciple. And we've taught our girls, you don't even have permission to like anybody without bringing them to us. Because I'm teaching this, this at this age, they're going to bring it to us because they do everything else we ask of them and train them to do. You don't have permission to like these boys without our permission. You bring them to us, we'll tell you it's okay to like that one. And they've brought us everything else so far, so it'll be the same with boys. Because it's, it's a very carnal, sensual, fruitless thing to be infatuated and obsessed to have crushes. I recognized that when I was a youth pastor 20 years ago. I watched how crushes came upon the teenage girls. I said in my heart, my kids will never be permitted to have a crush. That's emotional incontinence. That's inordinate affection. So we're going to teach them, no, you don't have a crush. We're not putting a picture of a boy band on your wall. No, that's dumb. Little did I know that would be the least of the problems because then they invented smartphones and then parents turned dumb and gave their kids smartphones and gave them social media access. We're going to have to raise a standard. So then Abigail says this. Abzi chimes in. She's my seven-year-old. Daddy? Yes, sweetie. Are you and mommy ever going to get a divorce? No. No, never, sweetie. Why would you ask that? She said, it just seems like everybody else does. Now, that's my seven-year-old recognizing culture. Now, other than here, our church, the only people she knows is homeschool, co-op, and gymnastics. And apparently it's so prevalent in those two arenas, and I can't even speak for either one because I'm not active in those like my wife is, she thinks everybody else is doing it. She just assumes it's part of the American culture. That's what my seven-year-old is already picking up on. So if I drive a bulldozer through how you were raised, I don't apologize. I've got to raise the standard for my progeny, for my children. God says in Malachi 2, why did he let us get married? Because he seeketh godly seed. And godly seed doesn't have crushes. They don't put pictures of boys on their wall to crush over. Amen. Amen. You put your picture on your wall, that boy or that girl, and you set your affection on them, you build an idol. 
Amen. I'm not against pictures on walls, but the idolatries of the heart. What is God's blueprint for family? Review real quick. Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. This is what's called the social commission or the social mandate. It's the first commandment of the entire Bible. It's the first law in the mitzvah, the 613 laws of the Jews. Be fruitful and multiply. We get married not to solve loneliness because marriage does not fix loneliness. We get married not to solve lust because marriage does not fix lust. If that were the case, there'd never be a porn-addicted husband. Let me also throw my two cents out there on this. You don't get married with a porn addiction. And girls, you don't marry a man with a porn addiction. This is something you've got to discuss in your dating and courtship. He'll hide it from you. You wouldn't marry a drug addict, would you? Would you knowingly, willingly go and marry a drug addict? Would you knowingly and willingly marry an alcoholic? Then why would you marry a porn addict? Because porn affects the brain the same way drugs do. And he can do drugs and drink and still think about you. He can't do porn and think about you. You can be an alcoholic and be faithful. You can't be a porn addict and be faithful in your heart. All right. Subdue the earth and have dominion. There's the second commandment for God's blueprint of the family. Families are little pockets of authority. My home is a little uh, enclave of the kingdom. Yours should be too. You should walk into my home and feel the presence of God and know the kingdom of God is accomplished in this home. My property should have the presence of God on it. The neighbor, not this, I'm just making this up. The neighbor who might be a drug addict and a wife beater, uh, you walk on his property, you feel darkness. But on my little square parcel that I own, that's my domain, and I have authorization. And anywhere I go, anywhere my feet do trod, anywhere my kids go, we take the gospel with us. And where, anywhere we go, we tell them, hey, listen up, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. That's dominion. Started in the gospels, excuse me, in the, king, in the garden before the kingdom fell apart. And then it was repurchased for us through Christ on Calvary. Now we've been given dominion again, and it's supposed to be replicated in your home. You ought to be teaching your children how to have dominion over their emotions, how to have dominion over their body. You ought to teach your kids to lay hands on themselves and speak to sickness and disease, to speak to their emotions, to pray for their friends to be born again. You ought to teach your kids how to accomplish everything you need to accomplish. You harness your children for the gospel. That's the culture they've been given. Amen. I'm not raising my kids to be white, and you shouldn't raise your kids to be black. I'm raising my kids to be kingdom soldiers. Pride is wrong in every direction. Pride is wrong no matter what kind of pride it is. It's pride. You raise your kids to stand for Jesus Christ first and foremost. Amen. Dress and keep, guard, protect God's garden. So one of our other mandates in the family, the family exists to build God's kingdom, his garden. In the Old Testament, we call it the garden. That carries over into Isaiah and the Psalms, and we see a little bit of it in the Gospels. Now we call it the kingdom in the church. The family is the infrastructure for the kingdom. We tend God's garden called the local church. We tend God's garden called the family. That's why we come together. We come and we're a fruitful garden unto the Lord. We are his vine. He's the husband, the vine keeper. We're his garden. We are to produce fruit for him, and we're to make sure the garden is ready for others to come and be planted. Some Christians don't ever come to the garden. Some Christians have never put their hand to the gospel plow to help plow in his garden. I have to, trouble wondering, are you genuinely born again? Because if the seed of God is in you, there's going to be this little homing beacon that draws you back to what God is doing. God is not doing home church unless it's under underground China. 
Let's just be clear on this because we got a lot of weird families in our region. They, they want to live off the grid, which is their way of saying, I don't want to submit to anybody. Home church is not a thing in America. Now, it's a thing, but it's not a God-ordained thing. By home church, I'm not saying you're starting a new ministry and you got no place or no money yet, so you just meet. We were going to do that with the Andrews before we launched them out. They have a wonderful basement. I said, we may just have to start having church in your basement as we train your team. We'll do that. That's great. That's under my authority as the, his pastor and as the, the church launcher. But I'm talking about church where dad doesn't want to submit to the pastor, so he grabs his wife and his 19 kids and retreats to their estate or their compound to live insubordinate to the gospel. That's weird. It smells like David Koresh. It's like the Koresh for men. It's not good to be alone. So we see that it's God who declared that. It's not you. Adam didn't know he was alone. This, again, is one of the points we brought out, that marriage does not solve loneliness. I've dealt with women trying to help them in private. Who's, they were lonely in their own marriage because their husband was uh, married to their career. He was, his mistress was his boss's business. He wasn't unfaithful sexually, just unfaithful in time and attention. It's possible for me as a pastor to be unfaithful to my wife with the church. Marriage does not fix loneliness. Loneliness is resolved by a walk with Christ. So you don't get married because you're lonely. Like I just also said, marriage does not fix lust issues. It might give you an avenue to vent them, but until you harness lust, you'll just begin to abuse the body of your mate. The companion God made was a female, a help just right for him. I like that translation. Help just right for him. When you wait and do things God's way, he brings you the help just right for you. Amen. doesn't make it easy. Marriage takes a lot of work. Marriage solves nothing. But it is very fruitful. Marriage is a garden. You have to put a lot into it to produce what wants to come out of it. Economic subordinationism in marriage. We talked about last week the big fancy theological terms, complementarianism and economic subordinationism. I think we got the definition. Yeah, complementarianism. That says basically man and woman in the marriage covenant are partners and they have equal but different roles. In my marriage, we'll just use me and my wife a lot as an example. We have equal but different roles. We're equally important. I can't do what I'm called to do without her. And she can't do what she's called to do without her. Again, we're not talking about the world. I don't care about the world in this regard. I'm talking about Christian marriage because I'm pastoring Christians this morning. She'll never fulfill her calling without me because she's called to be married. I'll never fulfill my calling without her because I'm called to be married. So we have equal roles, equally important but different this is complementarianism. The root there is complement. We complement each other. We don't complete each other. You are complete in Christ. One of the great misnomers of modern society is that if I'm, not, I'm incomplete without a man. I'm incomplete without a man. No, no, no. That insults the gospel. You are complete in Christ. But to be married to the God-ordained person is to be complemented, not like, hey, you look good, to complement your life. They, you balance each other. Complementarianism says we have equal but different roles, different graces, and different abilities, yet one head. Everything has to have a head. Even the Presbyterian Board of Church Governments, which I think is one of the wonkiest, second probably on the congregational government, which is the worst, even the Presbyteros form of church governments, which is a board of elders, there still has to be a chief elder. Otherwise what? We're voting. We're back to congregational style. 
Just so you know, you never let a congregation vote on the will of God. Because they can't even vote themselves to the house of God faithfully. Amen. Amen. This was set in order before the fall and original sin. So one of the theological arguments against complementarianism, or to kind of defend it, is that complementarianism is necessary because of the fall. It was ordained before the fall. Woman was made as the helper just right for man before the fall. He needed help before the fall. He needed a, a, a meet, a help meet before the fall. He needed union before the fall. He needed to be as one with his wife before the fall. So that's a false theological argument trying to like tiptoe around the feminists in your church. Rather than tiptoe around them, disciple them. Show them where they're wrong. Help them grow more than just their armpit hair. The Bible says the man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman was created for the man. Just let that marinate on your post-feminist, middle-class, white woman-ishness. Just thank God you were created. Now, we made this point last week. In the Hebrew, when man was formed, he was formed like mud. And that's what the Hebrew implies. He was formed like a ball of clay. Yeah, yes. But when God took the rib out of man, it's a different Hebrew word, and she was built, which means to construct like a building which is where I always come back and say women are such more, they're so more fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, we're both fearfully and wonderfully made, but women, I marvel at women and all that they're able to do. We make the joke of the Proverbs 31 woman. She's busy for 17 verses doing everything. She's an entrepreneur. She's real estate. She's into textiles. She manages her household. She has no fear. She's not afraid of the future. She's living high on the hog. She has nice clothing. Her kids are blessed. And what's her husband do? sits in the gate of the city. And when she gets home, her, him and the kids, they arise because they've been laying around all day. They arise and call her blessed. That's a tremendous woman. God's vision for family together, husband and wife are seen as one in the sight of God. Now, we, again, we didn't uh, touch yet on economic subordinationism. Economic subordinationism is seen in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, review from last week. Three persons, one God. But who did Jesus, whose will did Jesus come to do? The Father. So he submitted. Who does the Holy Ghost speak for in the earth? Jesus, the Son. So the Holy Ghost is submitted. So that's what we call economic subordinationism. Economic just means how the family is run. For the sake of the economy or the smoothness of the operations, there has to be subordination as opposed to insubordination. So my argument last week was if the Godhead operates in economic subordination and if Jesus can submit to the Father without a problem and if the Holy Ghost has come to do the will of the Lord Jesus and not speak of himself, but whatsoever I say, that shall he reveal unto you and he'll show you things to come. If the Holy Ghost doesn't have a problem submitting to Jesus who submitted to the Father, then why is there a debate on this in the church and husbands and wives? If it's good enough for the Trinity, and see, yet at the same time, God hath exalted Jesus above all names. So the Father's exalted the Son. 
just like we would exalt our wives and defer to her and say, honey, now this is your thing. You tell me what you want done. Even Jesus said, I will pray to the Father, ask of him, and he will send you. So then the Lord Jesus gets to ask the Father to do something. Sounds like marriage. A lot of subjecting one to another, but yet all of it according to the will of the Father. So again, all you have to do is use a little bit of common sense. Stay away from your favorite professor or Christianity today. And you'll work this thing out pretty easy. This Godhead is one, just like husbands and wives are one in the sight of God. Nevertheless, in the Lord, the wife is not independent of her husband, nor is the husband independent of his wife. Now, in the, in the New Testament, wife and woman are the same word in the Greek, and so you have to use context to know when to translate it wife or when to translate it woman. So this concept is obviously husbands and wives because I don't submit to, uh, every woman doesn't submit to me. She's not expected to. But my daughters do, just like my son does and my wife does. But I want you to see, the, uh, in the Lord, the wife is not independent of the man or the husband, and neither is the husband independent of the, his wife. So we are dependent upon our spouse. You, some of you cavemen husbands need to get a hold of that. You are not independent of your wife. You need her. The husband leaves father and mother to cleave to his wife. We need to touch on this again. Once you get married, you cut those apron strings. You probably should have started like chewing on them at 12. It's weird for a woman to marry a man and his mama. Is that right, ladies? Do you want to have a relationship with me and mama? Do you want to get input from me and mama? Why are you guys snickering? Because you know it's weird. And I get it. I watch my wife. She's totally different with my son than she was with the girls. I get the whole mama, mama's boy thing. And I'm watching that as her husband, making sure she doesn't get weird with the boy. And she won't. I won't let her. She's not. There's a connection there. But sometimes mamas are really weird towards their boys because they don't have a man. This usually happens in single moms and dysfunctional marriages. So it's a psychological thing. Mama doesn't ever really have a husband or a, a man or a lover to give her what she needs. So she looks for that affection and that nurture and that weird fulfillment in her boy. And if she raises him that way, she's going to raise him perverse. It can be straightened out, but it's going to be weird. So then when mama, when woman gets married to a mama's boy, she's going to feel second class because he, husband, is always deferring to mother-in-law, mama. And mama ain't got no say in a marriage. Mama needs to fix her own marriage. Amen. Trying to help. We're talking about God's blueprint for marriage. This was prophesied in the garden ever there was a child. Think about the prophecy of Adam. He had to be a prophet for, to say, for this reason, this is now my wife, for this reason shall a man leave his mother and father. Wait. What's a mother and a father? This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. For this reason, I'll leave mother and father. He didn't have a mother or father, but he was prophesying and declaring the word of God. It's quoted in Ephesians. When a man gets married, he leaves mama and he leaves daddy. And if he's got a good daddy, that's like, boy, get out of here. Go take care of that woman. I'll tell your mother to shut up. Don't worry about it. I'll deal with it. She's about due one anyway. <laughs> This begins a new household. 
Listen, even if you bring mama into your household, she lives under your rules now. Even if you bring daddy into your household, he lives under your rules. Because if he's having to come to you, you are now his caregiver and his caretaker. And there should always be rules. Remember that when we were teenagers, there were rules. This is time, time for mom and dad to reap what they sowed. And you are the combine that gets to help the harvest. <laughs> I've teased my parents. Look, dad, if you don't obey my rules with these grandbabies of yours, you're going to lose your grandparent privileges. I heard that so many times. Boy, you're going to lose your privileges. I said, Dad, you're going to lose your privileges. If you don't honor me and my wife with these grandbabies, you're going to lose grandparent privileges. (laughs) If you are bringing your family back into your home, they're under your authority. So what we're going to try to teach a little bit this morning as we go along is what authority looks like in your family. Because if you don't know, people are going to take advantage of you all over you. And that's not proper. That brings a chaos element into the house. And if you raise kids in chaos elements, they're going to be chaotic kids. You don't need that. The wife brings the balance, the perspective, the grace, and the gifts the husband lacks. And now think about this. Think about how perfect God is. And I I want to stretch our theology, but I'm not trying to be a heretic at all. God makes man and everything is perfect And man does a bang-up job taking care of the garden and naming all the animals. And God says, still not enough. And I'm not saying God had second thoughts or woman is man 2.0 with all the improvements and updates and downloads. But she gets everything added to her man never had. And it's interesting because especially when you read 1 Peter chapter 3, She's the one that is commanded to adapt to her husband, which means she's the one capable. Women already know this. Men are pretty incapable of adaptation. It's unfortunate, but that's like, again, women are the Swiss Army knife. We're like the dull stick. We're still working to sharpen an edge, and then once we get that edge, we're going to hurt ourselves with it. (laughs) And the Lord said, you're going to need some help. You're going to really need some help. But I've made this example God forbid, but here's the example. If my wife dies and I remarry, I'm not changing what I do. This is my calling. If I die and my wife remarries, she marries a doctor, she marries a school teacher, she marries a uh, whatever, she'll totally change how she lives her life because she'll have to adapt to him because he's the head, he's the visionary, And she was made to adapt. Men, now don't get me wrong, there would be some adaptation I would make towards my new wife uh, just because she's different and she needs something required. And that comes under the covering of love your wife as Christ does the church. But as far as my assignment, as far as what I do pastoring or missions or whatever I do for the kingdom, that's not going to change. So if I were to remarry, God forbid, it won't happen. But as an example, that woman who marries me, she'll have to adapt her life to what I do in the calling because her help is to help me with the calling of God. If my wife, if I die and my wife remarries and she marries a man who's a ministry of helps guy and he maybe has his own business or maybe he just has a career, she's, going to, she's no longer going to be a church mama. She's going to adapt herself to what he's called to do in the kingdom. And it'll bring out a whole new set of graces she didn't have for me. That's how I, I see fearfully and wonderfully made women are. You guys have the ability to adapt that men just can't even begin to comprehend And I personally believe God took a lot more time making woman than he did man. Man was just 
thrown on a potter's wheel and just formed, and then one was constructed. To me, it almost like opening up a cuckoo clock and, and working on all the gears and setting everything just right and fixing it. And to, to me, it seems like it took more time because of what was going to be necessary, because obviously he's sovereign and divine. He knew the fall was coming, and the will would still need to be accomplished. The will brings balance, perspective, grace, and gifts the husband lacks, and that's why you wait for the right one. Economic subordination in the marriage, be subject one to another, just like the Godhead is one, and there's unity in the Trinity. Husband and wife are team, but there must be one head, one final voice, otherwise strife and discord arises. Even in Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our image. Let us, plurality, make man in our image, plurality. One voice, there must be one voice of harmony. But we have several verses that say, wives, be subject to your own husbands. You don't have to be subject to anybody else unless they're your boss or a police officer or, you know, some authority TSA agent. You submit to that guy, but you don't submit to him as if he were your husband. You only submit to your husband. This is the subordination part or the subjection part. For the husband is the head. you got two verses that strongly confirm that on top of a bunch of others. This is where the feminist starts freaking out. Oh, down with the patriarchy. All right. We'll just let you do all the guy stuff. How many lumberjanes have you ever seen? <laughs> Who didn't have a big thing of dip right there? Arms as big as Jeff Harris's. I don't know if you call that a lumberjane. You just call her whatever she wants to be called. <laughs> She's with the chainsaw. <laughs> the wife is now superior to her parents. And she's superior to her husband's parents. So hear me very clearly, mothers-in-law. You are now second place to the new spouse. Amen. Families get really weird. Families get really weird in our culture, especially when you mix feminism in there. Families get really weird. The wife is now superior to the parents The covenant is with the wife, never with father or mother. I have never had a covenant with my mom and dad. It's nowhere in the Bible. But when I got married, I began a covenant. I don't have a covenant with my children. I'm their parents, but we don't have a covenant like that because one day they'll grow up and they'll enter into their own family covenant. Wives need to know they're more important to their husband than mom and dad. And you ought to be able to look at your wife and say, Honey, do you feel more important to me than my mama? Do you feel more important to me than my brother? Do you feel, do you feel like you have that place of preeminence in my life? And every wife ought to be able to figure out or be able to tell her husband, I feel important in every area but blank. And then, husband, your job is to make sure she feels important in every area because your covenant is with that woman, that wife. If your wife feels second class to mother-in-law, husband, you got to fix things. They're weird. They're wonky. Again, this, I've been telling you, part of my job as a pastor is to confront unbiblical culture. To confront culture is not racism. To confront culture is culturalism. It's a hatred for unbiblical culture. And every color under the sun has weird, wonky culture. I'm thankful my dad was an engineer. I grew up moving around the country, and God has had me other places. I would tell you Middle Tennessee culture is one of the weirdest cultures I've ever seen backwards. They can't even find the W to put it in there. It's just straight up backwards. Uh -uh. 
and yet it's all you know. So you think it's right. So it's hard to hear some of these truths for the first time. I told you last week, the Japanese, if a Japanese man is in a rowboat and he's got his mother and he's got his wife and the boat's sinking and he can only save one, the Japanese will always save his mother, culturally speaking. Now, maybe it's changed. And the reason is I can always replace the wife. I only have one mom. That may be how some of you view your mama. Now, I understand the notion. You can't replace her, but you've got no covenant with her. You've got to be able to be like King Asa and put your wife, excuse me, your mother, your wicked mother out of the kingdom if she's weird and wicked. The husband leaves. He begins a new household. Even the IRS recognizes this. Mom and dad are no longer the biggest voice in his life. Have you noticed in our culture we always say mom first? Dad and mom. Dad and mom. Doesn't sound right, does it? We always say mom and dad. Why does mama come first? So I threw it in there. Mom and dad are no longer the biggest voice in his life. He is no longer under their authority. That doesn't mean they don't have place to give wisdom or say, son, can I talk to you? Or I've been praying for you. Thank God if you can have a relationship like that. But there, sometimes even parents don't know how to do that. And so they need to be taught. That's why we're teaching you. Maybe as a grandparent, we're needing to teach you how to maybe enter into your child's marriage tactfully, respectfully, with permission at the boundary door. Hey, can I, can I give you a word of wisdom, son? I see something that concerns me. And you, be, as a child, be able to receive it and not think mama's trying to steer your marriage. Let me say this. Mama doesn't know what's best for your marriage. Daddy doesn't know what's best for your marriage. He's not in it. You're in it. He might have the occasional word of wisdom, but honestly, moms and dads ought to just be doing a lot of praying because you'll find that if you'll pray, you need to do a lot less meddling. The husband cleaves. The husband sticks like glue to his wife. He sticks like glue to his wife. That's not just sexually, but that is the inference there. He sticks like glue to his wife, but that's also emotionally. That's with her counsel. That's with her wisdom. That's with her input. That's with her preeminence. He's stuck to her. She becomes the biggest voice in his life. Her influence and voice is second only to God Almighty. That's the wife's input. And you never violate her intuition. You never violate her wisdom. You listen to everything she has to say because that's your covenant partner. If she's squeaking, stop and listen. At the same time, wives, I tell you, don't cry wolf. Don't be a notorious squeaker. Because you get to squeaking too much, he's like, yeah, yeah, he'll just tune you out. He'll just be nagging background noise. But if there's a squeak, pay attention until it's always the same thing. And you got to be able to say, listen, we're not changing that. Get over it. She transfers submission from her parents to her husband. This is a promotion for the wife because now she is a teammate and a joint heir of the grace of life. She's no longer a child. So 1 Peter 3, you can write this verse down. He says, husbands, likewise husbands, dwell with your wives with all intelligent recognition. Likewise refers to the subjection and submission that the wife gives her husband. So now we're back to this economic subordinationism. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with your wives in all intelligent recognition, giving honor unto the wife on two counts. You give honor unto her as unto the weaker vessel. The Bible says wives are weaker vessels. That's not to say they're weak. Women push 10-pound babies 
out of the nether region. Trying to be tactful. And men take 30 minutes trying to do something, a fraction of that, in the bathroom and struggle with it. And cry and say, I don't ever want to do that again. So we're not saying women are weak, but at the same time, world-class athletes are not equal, men and women, though the whole transgender woke thing is trying to make it. Listen, woke isn't just about black people getting justice. Woke, if you're black, you should stay as far away from woke as you possibly can if you fear Jesus Christ, because woke is all about transgenderism and anti-Christianity. We're all for black justice. We're all for civil rights. We're all for you know, healthy, proper policing. If you come to our Wednesdays, we, we pray against corrupt policing all the time. Every Wednesday, we pray against corruption on our police and sheriff, if there is any. I don't know. But what you're seeing in the world now is we're trying to make men women and women men, and we're trying to tell teenagers that guy can compete because he decided three weeks ago to identify as a woman. Now he's going to break all the state track records. But did he really? Because if you were to let him compete with guys, they'd smoke him. So that's wokeism for you. That's Black Lives Matter. One of Black Lives Matters is all about black transgender women. That's Black Lives Matters. If you get on the, well, they took it down. I have the screen captures. One of the major statement of faith or belief for the Black Lives Matter organization is black transgender women rights. Isn't that right, Frank? Yeah. It's not about black people. It's about Marxism. It's really about what's called Gnosticism. Women are the weaker vessel. You're delicate. We like you that way. We don't mind if you're toned, if you want to be toned. We don't mind if you want to be athletic. But, but generally speaking, women are a lot more gentle. They're nurturers. And this also tells us that you honor her. You don't try to make her work as hard as a lumberjack. But as it is, gentlemen, you know I've pounded on this for years around here. Men... We'll get up at 7.45, supposed to be at work at 8. But wife's already got dinner ready, breakfast ready, and his baggy lunch. He just, he just barely, you know, shaves a little bit, smells like B.O., goes to work, got his sack lunch, goes to work, works an easy eight hours behind a desk. Comes home, has to unwind with some news or some ESPN or something while she cooks dinner. But in between time, mama's been up since 5 o'clock. She's had her time with the Lord. She's got her baby's food laid out. She's got breakfast laid out. She's got the baby's lunch food laid out. Then she gets husband and kids off. Then she goes and does her nine-hour job. She's got to make sure the kids are home off the bus or home from school one way or another. Then she's expected to get home and stand all day on her feet while, uh, when she gets home to cook dinner while he sits there and he's had a hard day. Good preaching. I mean, this is, I've, I've, I've preached this 20 times in this church already. So this church knows it. And then, so then, then he's like, oh, baby, that's good. That's, you know, that's a good dinner. So then he's got to go ruminate like some cow. Goes back to watching more ESPN. She's cleaning up the dishes. She puts the babies in the bath. She's getting stuff ready for tomorrow, cleaning up the kitchen. And now the kid's in bed. She's like, hey, honey, you feeling, you want to get frisky? She's like, frisky? I'm going to frisk you with a stun gun or something. If she's the weaker vessel, you're bearing burdens for her. You're, help, you're getting up with her. What can I do to help get the kids ready? I'll go get the kids. You want me to run groceries? Ask for a list. Help bear her burden. Because we're to honor our wives on two fronts. That we're, she's the weaker vessel, so you've got to respect that. Honor means to respect that. 
she's weaker. Take the burdens off of her. And the other count is that she's a joint heir together, the grace of life. She's a joint heir. She's your equal. So listen to the two counts. In the physicality, she's weaker. In the spirit, she's your equal. You've got to honor both if you're going to make this thing work. Katie, go ahead and throw this picture up. Uh, I found this in Zimbabwe my, my last time I was there. I've been to Zimbabwe a couple times. What you see here, the only idiot smiling is the man. And here's Mama. She's got a baby on her front breastfeeding, which I've seen many times. They'll carry a baby on the back and the baby on the front breastfeeding, holding a baby, a little boy on the right hand crying, a little girl on the left hand. She looks sad. Woman looks like she's half dead. Of course, she's carrying probably 45 kgs of groceries. I see a spoon. I see, I don't know what I see. And there's, there's the husband just getting a free load. And he's the only one smiling. I've, <laughs> my Africans are smiling at me. Miscomfort is laughing. It's true, isn't it? It is true, isn't it? <laughs> Miss Kelechi, is this true? You know it's true. I've seen this all over Africa. Miss Crabtree, it's true, isn't it? She's a missionary to Ghana. It is true. Yeah. <laughs> this is a man who does not love his wife like Christ does the church. Now, I, I point this out because it, this is from Zimbabwe. I've used this to preach in Kenya. We can't, I have to show it on my phone. They all laugh. The wives love it because they're like, oh, pastor, you are helping us. And the men are like, pastor, you are shaming us. And they're always tearing at their face. I said, this man doesn't love his wife like Christ does the church. This man loves himself. And when, he, when she gets him home, he's going to want sex. And she's like, no, 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 you didn't help me with these other three. We're not making another one because it's just more responsibility for me. So you've got to care for your wife as Christ does the church. Okay, let's uh, take that down. I just, that's on my phone. It makes me smile from time to time. We were somewhere, we were in uh, East Uganda driving, and we saw a similar situation where um, this, this woman is walking, and she has a bundle of, of sticks on her head, and she had a baby on her back. She had two satchels full of goods, three or four children in tow, and walking way in front of her is her husband just swinging this little knife, and that's all he's doing to help. And Pastor Butch, who's from Kenya, he said, so typical, typical, typical African. That's the testimony of the African man, and Pastor Butch can say that. He's, he's a Kenyan. He's seen it all of his life. But it's the same thing in America. It's just on the couch. It's just on ESPN. It's just surfing memes on your phone while she gets up at 5.30, gets breakfast ready, gets lunches packed. She does the laundry. And I mean, women are amazing. They'll do all that and laundry at the same time, and the guy's having trouble focusing on ESPN and Candy Crush. <laughs> Boy, get me a Coke Zero. Huh. Anyway. She becomes a leader in her own family now. Ephesians 5.22, that's what we want to read. Let's go there real quick. You learning anything? <laughs> a few more slides here, not too many left. So let's focus on husbands because that's what we need to do. This thing only works. If the husbands were made first, the vision and the authorization is given to them and they better get with the program. 22, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. As unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. He is Savior of the body. Therefore, as, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself 
for it. So here's the deal. We as husbands, we've got to love our wives and give ourselves for her. The husband parallels Christ. The wife parallels the church. We're back to economic subordinationism in the marriage. Jesus is head over the church. He's the husband to the wife. We would never dare say the wife is equal, excuse me, the, the, uh, the church is equal to Jesus. But together they're one body. And yet we have to agree that the wife is never going to be the same as the husband, but that together they're one body. But this is all contingent upon uh, Jesus loving the church and the husband loving his wife. Both have their roles and authority in accomplishing the will of the Father. Both the Lord Jesus and the husband, the Lord in leading the church and the husband in leading his wife and family, they have their roles in accomplishing the will of God. The church or the wife must submit to Christ or the husband in order to glorify God. I, but see, husbands, if you will serve Jesus Christ and love your wife as Christ does the church, this will be easy for your wife to do. Don't sit there and be some hick, inbred, redneck caveman saying, I'm the husband, submit to me. I'm the husband. You're my wife. Do what I say. The Lord Jesus has never done that to me. And she shouldn't submit to that. She shouldn't obey that. She shouldn't honor that. She should say, when you get your heart right with Christ, I'll fix you some eggs. Jesus, the husband, equips his wife with communication, grace, strength, and assignments. Husbands usually only want to be a husband when they want something out of their wife. I should say carnal husbands. They usually only want to be the husband when it's time to trump their wife and get something out of them. Sex, dinner, an errand. And that's just selfish, redneck manipulation. Don't be that way. Jesus Christ laid down his life that he might sanctify his wife, that he might wash her with the water by the word of God. Amen. The husband is the authorized executive over the family. The wife is the governess. We saw that in Timothy and Titus. The wife is the governess. Every husband knows mama runs the home. She is graced at it. That's what the Proverbs 31 woman does. Her grace and giftings ensure that the household fulfills its assignment. She helps her husband fulfill the vision God has given him. He cannot do it without her. I can't do everything I do without my wife. I've told my wife, one of, one of the things I frequently say to her, I haven't in a while now, so I'll say it now. She makes my life easy. My, life, my wife makes my life easy. But in return, I've got to make sure I I've, I've provide everything she could ever need or want. And there are times I'll say, honey, is there anything you want that I've not given you? Or is there anything like, like are you living the dream? Is this you? And, she, and she'll tell you, I was raised so poor, honey, I didn't know the dream. So that makes me feel like at least I'm winning somehow. She, doesn't, she wouldn't know if I was losing. <laughs> Her God-given graces are underutilized apart from him. Now, this is a very controversial subject or statement if you're a feminist. Let's go back to biblical logic. If she, my wife, is made for me, that means there's things in her that cannot come out without me and my needs. Her grace to, let's say in my example, to be a pastor's wife, to be a missionary's wife, there's things that she'll never know are in her till I need them. That's why she's a gift. The Bible te teaches me she's a gift. Would I mistreat a gift from God? She's a gift from God. I have to renew my mind to the fact she's a gift from God. She's not a sex partner alone. But when men are selfish, that's all they see. She's a gift of uh, and a bundle of graces and abilities and strength and help and perspective and wisdom that I don't have, that I'll never finish my race without. 
And if I can keep that in mind, I'll treat her with more respect, with more deference. I'll lean on her more. I'll give her more permission, more authority. She will be able to utilize and find total fulfillment because she's being and being allowed to be what she's made to be. It could be women are, are frustrated because their husbands don't know, how, don't know how to let them be the wife. And it isn't get in there and make me some eggs. Get, get in there. I want you in there naked cooking me some bacon. Well, you get in there naked and get some bacon. <laughs> you little fat pervert. <laughs> Pastor Vaughn used to say, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Do it yourself there, boy. As a wife, she can only biblically operate within her authorization and husband-communicated parameters. My wife, she'll tell me, what's our vision? Tell me, what's our faith? What are we aiming at? How much money do we need to believe for? What's our perspective? Uh, let me know, honey, because if you'll tell me, I can hook up with you and we can get this faster. She'll, she told me not too long ago, we, we do better when you give me perspective and vision. Oh, yeah, okay. I'm so busy with the church, I forgot about my home. All right, yeah, she's worried about the home. That's where she lives. That's her domain. That's her governessdom. So I was like, oh, okay, let's do this. We need, I need to start saving up for a new vehicle because mine's 15, 16 years old now. We need to start saving up for that. I want our kids to be here in a year. And so that gives her something to aim and gives her something to stretch towards. But without my communication, she's underutilized. That's going to bring frustration. This is why wives' number one complaint is always lack of sex. No, never their complaint. Always lack of communication. The wife's number one complaint is always lack of communication. I want to know what's going on. I want to know what he's thinking. I want to know where we're going. I want to know how he's feeling. I want in. Why won't he talk to me? Because he's a dude. Because he's on the phone with mama. <laughs> I don't mean to bully you, just a little bit. It's like middle school all over again. All right, mama's boy. Wife's number one complaint is always lack of communication. And maybe you don't know this, ladies. The reason why is you can tell your graces are not being utilized. You're being pushed to the outside. And it's incredibly selfish for husbands to do this. And yet he's the one that wants to ride on your back while you take care of all his kids. So this thing is a union. There is a head, it's the husband, but it's a union that has an ebb and flow and a give and a take. When husbands fail to communicate family vision and direction, stagnation can creep in. Husbands, you got to always be looking for the next assignment, the next perspective, the next this, the next that. What The kids are growing. What's the next thing we need to adjust for? Mamas, they will perfect the household if you give them nothing else to do. But that's underutilization. They'll perfect the household and their career and their master's degree online and the garden and the petunias and new cooking recipes because that's just in them. And the guy just thinks about getting home, watching some ESPN, getting a Coke Zero and some sex. Dude, you're going to have to think bigger than bedtime seven days a week. Don't marry a man with that shallow of a vision. You, honey, you will be so frustrated in life because there's so much, there's such an abundance of grace and ability and perspective and wisdom and value in you. And that's why we teach you single ladies, do not settle for some dude with muscles. Muscles just means he's arrogant. Muscles just mean he's narcissistic. Muscles just means he likes to look at himself in the mirror. Amen. Don't settle for muscles. You can't maintain them forever. 
You hit, you know, late 30s, mid 40s, it's going to droop. <laughs> He's going to have turkey arms. Wives per- always seem to perceive the stagnation first. They are then frustrated because their graces are squandered and bottlenecked behind a lazy man. If mama's frustrated, dude has failed. I see snickering wives. I see women going, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> if mama's frustrated, dude, you need to up your game. If mama is frustrated, you are wasting grace. You're wasting ability. You're wasting wisdom. You're making your bride the, the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's daughter. You're making her second class. And yet, 1 Peter 3 is going to tell her, just endure. Don't be fearful. Just endure. Why should the Lord have to tell our wives to endure us? That's just messed up. When the Lord has to look at our, our wives and say, you just, just keep enduring. I'm working on that idiot. Amen. She doesn't, gentlemen, your wife doesn't want to feel like her life is being wasted behind a lazy man. We've taught you this, that men, you totally control your wife's destiny. All of you wives, just hear me, you enjoy the life your husband has afforded you. Which is why wives will look at going back to college. They'll look at starting a second job. They're going to look for some way to break out on the left hand and the right because the man is set up like a plug, like a bottleneck. And she is capable of more and wants more. And she happens to be, she happens to be driving a Ferrari behind your old hoopty beater. And it ain't no passing lane. Because if she could, she would. I've had to tell young couples, don't marry him. He's going to slow you down the rest of your life. And you'll enjoy it for a few years, and then it's going to get real frustrating because you're going to know, I could have been to Tucson by now. I could have so been to Albuquerque by now, and here we are. We ain't even hit Memphis yet. Hey, it's good preaching. You're all quiet on me. Bunch of Middle Tennessee white boys and a Cuban. (laughs) This frustration is produced by a husband failing to act like Christ does toward his church. Christ provides leadership, direction, and vision for his church. Are you man? Are you providing that for your family? Leadership, direction, and vision. We as a church, we thrive when God says, build me another addition. We thrive when God says, finance this missionary. We thrive when God says, do an outreach. We're just chomping at the bits for the Lord to tell us what to do next because it's going to cause a grace in us to break out. When God says, start a church down in Sparta, we're waiting for that because if he says, go, boy, it's time to go and we can do it. The Lord can't do it without us. If we don't do it, he'll move on somebody else. But he needs a human to do it. And your wife needs you to give her a command so she can activate all the things that are in her. Christ provides protection, covering, and affection. If Men, if you're not doing this, You're not acting Christ-like towards your wife. You need to provide protection for your wife, covering and affection. She needs to feel safe. She needs to feel affirmed. She needs to feel like she's the most important. And men are really bad at doing this because we're busy chasing success. My wife has to remind me. She's done it many times. I said, well, honey, those people need me at the church. She'll say, we need you. And then I have a voice of another pastor saying, Pastor Chris, Half that church would leave you tomorrow and never say bye. But that family, your, that's your life. Husbands, make sure you supply the household needs. 
That means get a J-O-B job, not a dream job. Whatever pays the bills that need to be paid. You get that job. When, I, uh, when my wife and I were engaged, I was working in Knoxville, living in Cookville. She's working in Cookville. I knew I was called here. I told the Lord, I am not commuting 100 miles one way every day to be a newlywed. So, Lord, if you don't provide a job, I'm going to flip burgers. I'm going to see if I can build a house or carpentry work. I'm going to do something. I was willing to do whatever it took to be home to take care of my wife. I was not commuting because that was not going to provide for her. Real men do whatever it takes to supply the need at hand. There's no ego involved. You got to look at your wife and say, as long as I got you, babe, we can do anything. We may be poor for a little bit, but there ain't no way to go but up from here. Quit trying to keep up with the Joneses. They go to hell broke anyway. The house, the husband must make sure his wife has all she needs, even as Christ does the church. The wife provides feedback and intel. She governs the home. Every husband knows that is the absolute truth. And the good husband says, what do you need to do it better? Now, obviously, we oversee it, like the Proverbs 31 woman, her husband's over the house, but she runs that thing. The Proverbs 31 woman is peak apex feminine fulfillment. She's got family. How many feminists in the Fortune 500 don't have that? They go home to nothing after they hit the martini club with the girls. They got nothing. They got a cat and and a servant. She's got business and infrastructure. She's got influence. She's got peace. And when, the best part, when she comes home, her whole family's happy to see her. That's worth it all right there. You come home and everybody's happy to see you. F- feminism does not afford but one of these any given six weeks. Maybe a little bit of peace, maybe a little bit of influence, but you don't get it all at once. You do it God's way, you can have just about all of it all at once. What possible say could in-laws have in any of this? other than the occasional tidbit of wisdom. You don't live with me, Dad. I love you. You don't know what we're dealing with here. It's almost as bad as when I was first pastoring, two or three years into pastoring, I was on an airplane, and the airline steward, I don't even know what you call him anymore. Can't call him a stewardess. Cabin steward. Flight guy, flight attendant. Guy going to give me Coke and peanuts. That guy. He stops and he's chatting me up. And he asked me, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I pastor. He said, you pastor? Tell you what you do. I was like, I'm not sure you're the wisdom I need to steer the church of the risen Savior. Nothing against airline stewards, but he had some weird tattoos. Not like trendy new ones like Pinterest art like you guys get. These things look like old prison tats. He actually rolled up one. He said, one of them here said, except for the hunt, nothing waits for God or something like that. His really ugly deer head. I'm like, this is the guy going to give me wisdom on how to steer the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's about like mama sticking her nose under your tent. Or your daddy. Now, there are times they have great wisdom, but if that's you, mom and dad, you got to pray and find wisdom because it's not your household, it's not your covenant, it's not your faith, it's not your race. The husband gives himself for his wife and his children, his covenants with his wife. Give up dreams to supply immediate family needs. Give up hobbies and friends for the benefit of the family. This may shock you. I go caving on Friday. I get permission from my wife. 
I run everything around here. I don't get permission from AJ or Hannah to go caving. But I say, honey, I want to go. Pastor Jim's wanting to go caving again. You okay with that? We okay? Is there something else we need to do? She'll say, are you going caving Friday? I say, yeah, that's kind of my day off. That's my thing. I get permission from the missus because my hobbies go on hold for my family. And there's been times she's like, it won't work, so I don't do it. No big deal. Cave's not going anywhere. The husband establishes boundaries to keep harmful influences away from his marriage, his wife, his children, whoever or whatever they are. Husbands, your job is to protect that garden. Keep weirdos away. Keep weird television away. Keep weird in-laws away. Keep weird family members away, neighbors away. Your job is to set that boundary to keep your garden safe. The health, safety, and success of the godly husband, not his parents. The health, safety, and success of his family, not his parents. You're concerned with your family. It's the husband's number one priority. My mom and dad are not my responsibility. My brother and my sister-in-law and their kids in Florida, that's not my responsibility. My responsibility is my wife, my three kids, and this congregation. I'm not going to be distracted. If my mom and dad ever have to come live with me, we take care of them in their old age, they abide by my rules. They play by my game. It's my house. They now submit under me. I'll honor them, but they'll obey me. That's how this works. My dad, if he's 90 years old living at home, he's not going to be calling me boy, telling me what to do in my house. That's not proper. I'll honor him. You're my father. Thank you for all that you've done. I'm taking care of you. But dad, no, this is not, you're not bossing my wife around either. It's not proper. Amen. One or two more notes. It is under this unified team of husband and wife, father and mother, that children can be safely and effectively trained up as godly seed. A fatherless culture cannot help but corrupt and degrade into chaos. You can be married and still be fatherless in your home. Fatherlessness is the greatest blight in our nation today. Mr. Cephas uh, just got his PhD and a bunch of stuff. I asked him to send me the stats. Fatherlessness. A fatherless culture cannot help but corrupt and degrade into chaos. How many will suffer when that culture is enshrined and protected through music, through videos, through movies, through political movements? When we, when we, when we cheer fatherlessness and we won't confront it as a pagan ideology? I said, Cephas, what were those stats about graduating high school and all that? He said, Dr. Cephas said this, graduate high school work a full-time job, even at minimum wage, get married and stay married, and wait until you get married before having kids, at least 21 before you get married, and you will have a 98% chance of never being poor. He said in Canada, it's 0.9%. You'll never be poor, 99.1% chance. If you'll simply graduate high school, get a stable job, Wait till you're 21 to get married and wait till you're married till you have kids. There's a 98% chance you'll never be poor the rest of your life. So then I brought this book. This is this massive uh, anthropological study called Sex and Culture from 1936, 1934, Oxford Press. Dr. J.D. Unwin's conduct, uh, his landmark study of 86 civilizations through 5,000 years of human history he found a positive correlation between the cultural achievement of a people and the sexual restraint they observed. This gets back to fatherlessness. The evidence is that human societies are free to choose either to display great energy or to enjoy sexual freedom. It appears they cannot do both for more than one generation. The whole of human history does not contain a single instance of a group becoming civilized unless it has become absolutely monogamous 
nor is there any example of a group retaining its culture after it has adopted less rigorous customs. A massive study, landmark study, 86 cultures through 5,000 years of history, human history, and basically it says you need a mom and a dad or your culture is going to hell. 1936, Oxford. Any culture without fathers is corrupt. You can be married and still have a fatherless household because dad is a no-show, deadbeat. Degradation is the destiny of any culture that departs God's family blueprint. Those traditions will become the next generation's cursed inheritance, and they won't even know any different. Mm. 